last year you had companies like you know FTX, Robinhood, and all of these companies were paying <laughs> these tax that to me made no sense, right? They're paying thousand plus dollars an account. And I don't know, a lot of fintech was these companies raising large rounds with somewhat undifferentiated products spending huge amounts of money on acquisition and it felt like a complete race to the bottom where if they're paying these amounts that don't make any sense we can't even compete it doesn't even make any sense for us so we decided what if we took that as a challenge and for the first you know one two three years actually spent zero dollars on traditional marketing and that innovation forced us to organically find customers and see how that goes if you're a startup and you have big growth dreams you need the right crm platform that's hubspot I want to tell you all about HubSpot for Startups. It's our program where you can get up to 90% off your HubSpot subscription. You need to increase leads. You need to boost revenue. You need to improve your customer's experience. HubSpot for Startups helps with all of that. Plus, you'll get 24-7 customer support and integrations from more than 1,500 of today's most popular apps. I almost forgot. There's a complete collection of amazing resources to help you learn and get better at your craft. HubSpot is trusted by some of the best startups in the world and is used by over 200,000 customers around the globe. To see if you're eligible to join the HubSpot for Startups program and take your growth to the next level, visit HubSpot.com slash startups. And welcome to another episode of Marketing Against the Grain, your show for marketing-minded people everywhere. I'm your co-host, Kip Bodner, CMO over at HubSpot, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Kieran Flanagan, who's the CMO over at Zapier. And we have a very special guest today. We are joined by Angkor Nagpal, who is the founder of Ocho Wealth, previously the founder of Teachable, a generally all-around brilliant, smart person. And today we are going to talk all about marketing as an early-stage company. What do you need to do when you're getting your business off the ground to really nail marketing, get distribution, and really get scale? So, Ankur, thank you so much for joining us on Marketing Against the Grain today. So happy to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to do this. All right. So I have to give the audience a little bit of background. So we have a mutual friend, Anchor Sam Parr, who founder of The Hustle, yeah. HubSpot bought The Hustles. And that's how I met Sam. And Sam is a connector. He, he likes to hold events and everything. And he held a dinner, I think like a year or so ago yep. in New York, of a bunch of investory founder kinds of folks. And you were there. And I'd never met you before. And I was like kind of on the other side of the table. And I was like, damn, this guy's really smart. Like he's probably the smartest person here. Like you were dropping knowledge, especially on the finance and investing side that like was blowing my mind. And now I'm like, oh, it kind of makes sense that he's doing a finance startup. This is like all coming together. But the second I met you, I was like, oh, we got to like figure out a way to do something. And so now I'm super excited to have you on the show. I think you're too kind. I guess is you're, you've, you've slowly gotten everyone from that dinner on. No, the first of all, but, no, but yeah, excited, excited to do this. I mean, uh, at the time I was running a fund, so it's very close to seeing things on the, the finance side of things and now glad to be back in the operator seat. Okay, so what really catalyzed to have you on the show was you sent out a tweet that was basically like, hey, this time around, my second time around as a startup operator, I don't want to spend money on traditional marketing. Can you tell us, one, a little bit about what you're doing at Ocho so that we have enough business context to know? And like, what do you actually mean by that? Like, what are you actually doing differently the second time as a startup operator versus the first time? So, I mean, the goal with Ocho is we want to help business owners build wealth. I mean, fundamentally, we think anyone who works for themselves, they're so busy working on their business, they're not thinking about their own personal finances. So, we're doing that with education, which is teaching people how broken the tax system is and how they can use it to their advantage. 
and two, building financial products to help them actually do that. So our first product is a retirement account for anyone who works for themselves. But jumping into you know why we decided to not spend any money on paid advertising is I think it's largely a state of where the fintech market is, which in my opinion, it's just completely broken. <laughs> like It's gotten a little better now. But I mean, think about it. Last year, you had companies like, you know, FTX, Robinhood, and all of these companies were paying <laughs> these CACs that to me made no sense, right? They're paying thousand plus dollars an account. And I don't know, a lot of fintech was these companies raising large rounds with somewhat undifferentiated products, spending huge amounts of money on acquisition. And it felt like a complete race to the bottom where if they're paying these amounts that don't make any sense, we can't even compete. It doesn't even make any sense for us. So we decided, what if we took that as a challenge and for the first, you know, one, two, three years, actually spent zero dollars on traditional marketing and that innovation forced us to organically find customers and see how that goes. To be candid, I have no idea, you know, how well that will work. We're still pretty new, but so far I think it's been a good strategy. It helps us identify a higher quality of traffic. When we ran paid ads at Teachable, we started spending so much money and attribution was such a mess that you, we never really knew what yeah. was coming from where. And you get too scared to turn it off, right? You're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. The data is showing growth potentially is coming from there. But you have things like, you know, people searching for the word teachable, right? And once you turn those ads on and you struggle to turn it off and I'm like, let's just keep it clean this time around. Yeah, it's like an addiction, right? Like if you're like, I think it's working. Everything's going well. I don't, I don't want to rock the boat. Yep. But I wonder if one of the things you give up, and I'm actually interested to hear about this as you as a, a founder, because I think one of the things you might give up by going down this path is two things, actually. Speed, mm -hmm. because it's much easier to just switch on paid advertising, raise money, pour into Google and Facebook and try to accelerate growth. Like if you have good activation and upgrade rates on those things. And then in some ways, actually maybe the thing that you're you're saying isn't great for paid, but it's more measurable than like influencer marketing and some of the partnerships and some of those things. It's like easier to build some sort of funnel to tell you, I put in X and I get out Y. So I, I somewhat disagree. I think paid gives you the illusion of being easier to track. But yes. I think you have all these platforms fighting to take attribution where they're going to jump and tell you that this ad actually is what caused the purchase or whatever. But I mean, come on, user journeys are complicated, right? But like Facebook's going to see their pixel and be like, this person converted from Facebook, but Google will say the same thing. And realistically, the same users probably, you know, interacted in eight different channels. And if you really want to get deep into it, you have to assign a probability-based score and it's all kind of messy anyways. So in general, I think paid gives you the illusion of like traceability. On the point of it being faster to scale, that could be the case, but I think for the first two years, we're just finding out who we want to be when we grow up. So I'm less right. concerned about that, right? Yes. We have to find product market fit. Also, I think I'm probably like lying a little bit when I say we're not going to spend any money. Like we'll do things like, you know, affiliates and influencers where we'll pay them a percentage of the sales. Like affiliate, yeah. you know, you can argue affiliate is a subset of paid and that stuff we absolutely will do. But things we're not going to do is traditional SEM, Facebook, all of that. Yeah. One of the things that Google and Facebook are going to do, they understand that in the world in the future, the direct attribution is going to be meaningless because of privacy and cookies. Mm -hmm. And what they are going to try to do is reorientate people towards some sort of like view through conversion or conversion that like means that you pay this money and people convert it elsewhere. And I think they'll build technology. Like the way companies do this today is like incrementality. And so what they do is within the States, they'll run in these regions paid advertising and turn it off in these regions and look to see the uplift in conversion, right? Is there any real uplift in overall conversion? And it maybe come through from other channels. I suspect Google and Facebook will try to build that into their platforms to try to get people thinking bigger about paid advertising. But what I love around what you're all doing is 
you're actually building real foundations. Mm -hmm. Like you're not just going down the route of becoming addicted to paid advertising at an early stage. Like, no, let's build like real foundation here. Let's build real roots, which is what HubSpot really did in the yep. in the early stages as well. So what the hell are you doing? You know, if you're not spending money on traditional ads, like what are you doing instead? That's that's what everybody listening is going to want to know. We're doing a combination of stuff. And I mean, I think it would be helpful to kind of share what worked for us at Teachable, a part of which is what we're trying yeah. to replicate here as well. Please. So even at Teachable, two big things didn't work for us. Sales did not work for us because we, our customer values were not high enough. Our average customer paid us $70 a month, which is not enough for sales to work. And traditional paid advertising, aka like buying Google and Facebook straight to our marketing site never worked. And those are sort of the two biggest levers. So what is it that worked? One thing we realized at Teachable is our most successful creators in turn had other people in their audience that were likely to be creators for us. And that's very different from a lot of other companies, right? You think about a DTC e-commerce brand or something, or even like SaaS, you know, your average good customer doesn't in turn inspire other customers. But for us at Teachable, that was the thing. Like a top creator, we talked about their story and there were a lot of people like them in their own audience. So that differentiated channel, we leveraged and I don't want to say exploited, but we've got very, very good at leveraging that. We were good at storytelling. We were good at doing live events where we propped up people and, you know, made them look good and had them invite their audience and, you know, created marketing through that. We were good at traditional affiliate marketing. So that's one channel we're definitely doing where we're partnering with a ton of people that are influencers or creators in the personal finance space, helping them become successful customers and then telling their story. We're also, you know, stealing the same playbook from last time where we're doing live online events where we'll host a conference, ideally have, you know, 20 to 40 speakers. The event is entirely free, but at the end of the event, we'll have some kind of offer chained to our software if people actually end up buying. So that's one big class of activities we're going to be doing and then spending other time on, you know, content, social channels, and yeah, just trying lots of different things and sticking to what works. My follow-up to that is like, I imagine the online events worked really well at, at Teachable. Have you started doing them now in like a post-pandemic world at Ocho? Like I've seen the event fatigue of those virtual events be very substantial. Do you think that like that is still a viable playbook for businesses today? We've done one. We're doing another one soon. But again, at Teachable, we've been doing this since 2016. So the online events like far predated, you know, anything COVID related or whatever. Yeah. So we're still doing them. And I think it'll be great sort of list building activity and, yeah. you know, have a ton of speakers and feature them heavily and stuff. But again, it's just one channel in many as, as we sort of experiment. One of the things that you had in your thread that I thought was like really yep. cool, you had uh, allowed team members to build individual creator brands. And mm -hmm. one of the things that's like really unique about FinTech, I use it as an example of all sectors at some point go pop culture. Yep. Like if you told me 10 years ago, the best place to get content and entertainment online is like finance. We were like, no, no, it's not. That's totally <laughs> yeah. boring, right? And today, like it's the merge of pop culture and finance, partly because like there's a lot of influence within that space. But actually like one of the challenges for a founder to allow their employees or people to actually build their own brand is now that brand doesn't have the influence, the person has the influence. It's kind of like if you watch UFC, you know, UFC has all the equity, the fighters don't have the e equity. And that's kind of like what founders want. You want to flip that. So why do you want to flip that? It's a little bit, even if you look at it, the NBA versus the NFL and NBA, the individual stars have greater brand equity and the NFL is more the franchises. But look, I fundamentally don't believe people want to follow brands. Like, yes, sometimes they do and sometimes brands get away with it. Well, that's but a spicy like, take. I like this. That is a spicy take. I don't want to see like Burger King or Wendy's tweeting back at me. I don't really care. <laughs> but I think people connect with people, right? And a big part of our strategy this time is, and frankly, I can afford this as a second time founder, had a good you know, exit, is I've 
given a lot of our team members a lot more equity than they would get at other places. I mean, obviously, they're mm. still free to go, but giving people a lot of equity, it's a longer vest. Everyone's vesting five years instead of four. But with meaningful equity and ownership, I'm like, okay, look, I want them to feel like owners. And a big way is like, okay, go spend company resources, company money, company time to go build your personal following. Is it a leap of faith and a show of trust? Absolutely, right? Because they could at any point sort of walk away and that audience is theirs. But my bet is they will build a bigger audience because people want to connect with people. And that in turn will sort of inspire like loyalty in the sense of, you know, a true founding team building this together. But yeah, that is, you're right. It is a bet and it is slightly unconventional from what other people do to be determined how it works out. But right now, yes, we're doing a little bit of stuff on like company brand building, but I've empowered everyone to also build their individual brand with company resources behind them. I'm curious to get your thought, actually, Kip. So yeah. as a, like, as people who work within brands, what's your reaction to that? Look, I, I think especially at early stage businesses, the people matter just as much or more than the company brand. And I think in a post AI world, humans and personality matter much more, right? I think those are the two things. I thought you were going to say humans don't matter in a post AI world. <laughs> well, you know, personality, perspective, all of those things, I think fundamentally deeply, uh, I always try to play like audience skeptic. I think your bet anchor is that like, because I give them more equity, they're going to have incentives to monetize, you know, Ocho on their personal channels. Like they're going to want to promote, they're going to want to do that. That's that's the big bet is that I actually don't think the risk is them leaving after they built this audience. I think I think the risk is them not monetizing it yeah. while they're there. Fair. Yep, fair. And that's, again, that's totally not a risk, but it's totally something that could happen. And at the end of the day, everything we're doing right now, I think is a great strategy for a business of our size, which is like yeah, totally. you know, under 10 people. It's a completely different ballgame, you know, 100 people plus and so forth. But for now, yeah, absolutely. It also is like, it definitely also represents a change of mind from like the first time operating. And like one example is the first time I was operating, I found I was like very sensitive to early employees spending time on anything that was not their company. So like if an early employee had a side project or a side hustle or something, my immediate reaction is like, hmm, like maybe, you know, their time is better spent focusing yeah. on the job they're doing. But then what I found is the people that had the side hustles were frankly people that were just smarter and more motivated. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's how they chose yes. to spend this their the free answer. time. And so a lot of times, like the people, the, the time they're spending on their side hustle, that is the time other people may be, I don't know, watching TV or doing other shit. It didn't actually come at the opportunity cost of like time spent, you know, working on whatever their core job was. And they tended to be our best employees. And, you know, I realized then like none of this stuff matters. And this sort of in a vein like that is just encouraging people to, yeah, you know, build their personal audience. I mean, you, kept, you and I agree with this, which is like the early days of HubSpot, people were hired because they had shown the ability to build influence. Mm -hmm. And the best people that I've hired had their own side projects and in, mm -hmm. and actually in some cases had their own businesses. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but why would you want people like that? Well, they are entrepreneurial in spirit. Even if mm -hmm. some people who are entrepreneurial in spirit operate best within companies because they want yeah. certain guardrails, they want certain securities, but they actually have that fire and you can see it come out in all of these different side projects. And I wonder like, cause you've thought about the way that you kind of approach that in your first company mm -hmm. is maybe different how you're approaching it today. Yep. Do you hire differently? Because now you are looking at like, oh, does this person build audience or influence yep. anywhere else? For marketing roles specifically, I do look for, can this person build an audience? Have they built an audience? It doesn't have to be on their own channels. For instance, you know, we hired someone for SEO and he's established taking multiple 
properties from zero to to a massive audience, even though his personal socials are pretty terrible, right? So it's, it's like <laughs> <hard to do. laughs> that, those are SEO people. They like to live under rocks. Yeah, Sorry, yeah. SEO people. Okay, all right. Darren, make sure you keep that in yeah. and at Kip Bodner on Twitter. SEO people will f- yeah. up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Their violent community yeah. on the Twitters. I, um, I'm an SEO person. I love you guys. Don't get mad at me. Yeah. 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 But the other thing that we've done universally in terms of how we're hiring this time is like spending a lot of time indexing on people that really want to work at at a startup. I think at Teachable, we hired a lot of people Mm. that at some point startups went from being this like niche counterculture thing to like the thing everyone wants to do. And as a result, (laughs) a lot more people worked at startups and frankly cared about working at startups. But this time I'm like, okay, who are the people that actually absolutely want all the chaos? You know, when the going gets hard, they appreciate being at a startup enough that like, and that's something we've indexed on very, very heavily this time around that we did not the first time. One of the other things I've noticed though is like, we've we've talked a lot about like your team, the other nine people, but like you're spending a lot of time creating yourself building mm-hmm. audience yourself. You've got a nice little studio set up. You've got the bookshelf. Yeah, yeah. you've got the classic bookshelf. You're <laughs> yeah. missing the plan. Yeah. A couple other things yeah. there. But you, you know, yeah. lighting's on point. Like, why are you doing that? And how much time as a startup CEO who is incredibly busy are you spending on creating and building influence and audience? Yeah, that's something that, again, go back and forth on. And I, bigger picture, I think of me spending time building an audience as still an experiment from the company's perspective. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, it depends on channel. If it, if you look at something like Twitter, for better or worse, I just spent enough time on Twitter, I may as well be creating content. I'm already totally. wasting my life there. So I may as well. <laughs> I, may, I may as well. I may as well do that. And, that, and I mean, that, that channel did work. I mean, I think roughly three quarters of our early customers like were sourced from Twitter. So that, that actually works. In terms of the other content, like especially short form video and stuff, it's frankly an experiment. And, you know, I go through phases where I'm like, we're going to do it and then do and then not do it. And it may be dead in six months. It's hard for me to like definitely say we're doing this. It's just one of many channels I'm testing and kind of playing around with. I feel like Twitter's strapline to get people to create video for Twitter should be, F- it, I'm already creating yeah. content in this hellscape, <laughs> so I might as well create video as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But I, I would say right now, in terms of like content creation, I mean, it's not ideally trying to find a setup that is kind of like how you guys have it, where you know it's an interview and then that can be repurposed in a lot of different ways and stuff. But really, I mean, the repurposing is sort of the the buzzword, and we're trying to do that as much as possible. It's hard, and you have to find the right vendors and automation to like get that content workflow down. But it, mm-hmm. for everybody watching, I think if you have a long form kind of meaty format of content, whether it be email mm-hmm. newsletter, YouTube show, what have you, then you really can turn that yep. to tweets, turn that to everything else. And that seems like the approach you all are taking. And the thing that's sort of helping now is I look about two years ago, I got fascinated with sort of the tax code. <laughs> <laughs> How does one get started to get fascinated with the tax code? Very, very easily. You sell your company, you hire expensive lawyers and consultants, and they, <laughs> they tell you certain things and it blows your mind that like, that's how <laughs> our tax code is. Like, there's all these things that like, exist that you know, like there's just so many loopholes and it's wild. Can you share the most shocking one in that journey just so that we're all like can get a good laugh at that that's actually a real yeah. thing? I can share one that's actually very relevant to people at, sure. at big tech companies where there's a thing you can do where if you work in a big tech company where you can actually use real estate to offset like high W2 income. So I, there's a few f- couples actually, I'm not going to name them by names, where 
let's say the you know one person has a fang job that makes you know seven eight hundred thousand dollars a year the other person's a real estate professional they buy buildings and when you buy a building you can depreciate about 20 to 30 percent of the purchase price up front and as a couple you can do it against your w2 income so as a result you can never pay any taxes oh wow that's one wow, of the like more so more extreme yeah what am i doing with my life here oh you're gonna see kip's background is a kip shaped hole in the wall as he runs to his like tax advisor <laughs> no. to get this yeah it's crazy <laughs> or or there's this entire like cottage industry of art dealers where they sell you art just for the idea of like buying art at low prices for the purpose of having it appreciate only to donate it to a museum because that donation gives you a much bigger tax write-off. So people are buying oh, what this. The yeah, people I'm are in buying on this, this play, art. Kieran. Yeah. You know I'm in on this play. Yeah. Oh, why don't I? That's well. I'm yeah. in Ireland. Like in Ireland, you wake up, you breathe, and you give the government all your money. So I can't do anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. It's but okay. But you but you started getting obsessed with the tax code because you had some time and you had some money and you were trying to figure it out. And the system is sort of stacked against you, right? Because unless you come from wealth or privilege or whatever, no one ever tells you about this stuff. Like it's actually funny when you talk about like systemic privilege and stuff. If you read about. A lot of people read about Peter Thiel's like Roth IRA, right? Where he theoretically yeah. saved like billions of dollars. You know who taught him that? It was Sam Bankman Fried's father at Stanford. Like that's sort yeah. of the, the cesspool <laughs> of like how privilege works. <laughs> so our goal is like, look, I mean, let's just talk about this publicly to, to make the same playbook available to everyone. If they want to do it, it's on them. But this information right now is so closeted that I think it's actually a net good to talk about it and let more people do with it what they want. What is great about what you're doing at your stuff is cool, but like it has something that anybody can apply. Anytime there mm -hmm. is information asymmetry where yep. there's this really complicated, dense information that's hard for people to access. If you can break that asymmetry, you can create so much value that you can build a big community and audience, no matter what it is. In your case, it's tax code, but it could be real estate code, construction code. It could be it could be a whole host of things. And there are so many people that watch the show that should be taking advantage of that. You are in a market where there's information asymmetry and you've got to take advantage of that opportunity. I mean, again, so I'm very fortunate that when it became time to start another company, I spent a lot of time debating whether to start a company at all for multiple reasons. But if I was <laughs> doing sure. it, it was always clear it was going to be on addressing this imbalance in some way, shape or form. This is my second reason I felt sad about living in Ireland today. I couldn't get on the Bard, the Google Bard waitlist. I can't even yeah. get on the waitlist because <laughs> I'm in Ireland. Because you have second Ireland. class <laughs> access to software and even worse tax code. It makes me feel sad. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, but then then again, I, I think I would prefer if the system was easier. It would be so great if just like the government just told you how much money you owed and it, it just worked and you know you don't have to spend oh, all your no, time that's doing not, this. You should, there's a niche for you to like really excel in Ireland. Like, <laughs> this place is a shit show. Like just so you know, it's like yeah. you think you think the US is bad. This place is a chaotic shit show though. All the American companies are running there though for for clearly some kind of tax benefits in Ireland. Yeah. Tax incentives, yes. They get tax benefits. Irish people pay for those get, benefits. Pay for, yeah, yeah. <laughs> pay for those benefits. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. One of the things I would love to talk about, Unker, is I thought it was fascinating that you talked about having hundreds of influential investors on your cap table. We talked a little bit about mm -hmm. this on mic, where when a founder is raising, they have their traditional VCs. I feel like over the last number of years, they've kind of leaned into operators as well. They want to have yep. really great operators on their cap table. And I think the influencer one is fascinating. Like, how do you think about that in terms of your overarching cap table? And what do you look for in people who uh, invest in your company? Which Kieran's trying to invest. Good deal flow. <laughs> You're absolutely, yeah. We definitely took a very unconventional route where the first money came from my own fund. And after that, so it really wasn't about the money anymore. And I, I just wanted to have a group of dope people vested in our success. People to whom, you know, 
if there's a product launch announcement, I can send out an email and have this army of people amplified. So what we decided is to do what we call the friends as an operator and creator round and took money with a caveat that no one could invest more than $10,000. The minimum investment was 1000 because we used AngelList and that was the required minimum. If their minimum was lower, I'd be fine with that as well. So people could invest between $1,000 and $10,000. And we had over 200 people do this, a ton of whom were either creators or successful operators. And in a few cases, just like friends. And as a result, we now have this like army of people when if we want to announce anything or we want to have people like amplify a product launch or really, you know, need help in any specific issue, we have all these people willing to help out. So again, it was great for me. And it's a strategy that I think can work for a lot of people where they don't necessarily want or need the VC sort of influence, which again, at some point we may raise from traditional VC, but like for now, it didn't feel important. There is just such a great market for smart creators, influencers to have VC funds. Like you just look at the success of what Logan Paul and KSI can do for a drink. <laughs> like yeah. that's the same as any other drink and they can make it into one of the biggest brands in the world. Like any founder would want those people to invest in their company. It's just mm -hmm. such a, it's yep. such a strength, especially where distribution has become commoditized. Like search gets commoditized by AI, paid advertising gets commoditized by data and privacy. And so like it just up levels the distribution leverage you get from influence. And I've been spending some time, I spent some time last year talking to a bunch of creators that have actually done well, have large audiences, millions of subscribers. The weakness in a lot of their strategy is they own very little equity upside. Like they're making a bunch of cash mm -hmm. and brand deals and stuff. But like my advice to them frequently has been find ways of like having equity upside in the things you do. Because at a certain mm -hmm. point, you've already made money. You're already making a couple million bucks a year. But like, where are you going to have ownership of a piece of a company or something? Because that is the stuff that really, really scales, right? So what you're seeing now is a lot of sophisticated creators also understand that where they realize that like, okay, fine, they can keep renting out their time. They can keep doing brand deals. But really as a creator, like if you own a piece of a company, that's the thing that can, you know, take you from rich to like wealthy. We'll be right back. But let me tell you about a podcast from our network. Truth, Lies, and Workplace Culture is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, your audio destination for business professionals. Join husband and wife team, Al and Leanne Elliott, as they dispel myths, impart wisdom, and answer all your questions about finding, keeping, and motivating great people. Their audience loves the show's unique blend of theory and practice, which helps business owners and leaders simplify consumer psychology. If you enjoy learning what makes people tick, then this is the show for you. Recently, they did an amazing episode on what makes your team say yes, exploring the psychology of influence. Phil Agnew shares his rich experience in behavioral science and delves into the intricate psychology of influence. They explore the fine line between influence and manipulation, uncovering how subtle cues and messaging impact team decision-making and motivation. Whether you're a leader, marketer, or anyone interested in the art of intelligence, this episode is packed with strategies and psychological principles to understand and harness the power of yes in teams and organizations. Listen to Truth, Lies, and Workplace Culture wherever you get your podcasts. What's the difference between rich and wealthy, just out of curiosity? In my mind, like I think wealth is the sort of thing that happens when you own assets, when you own things that like kind of work for you, right? So in my mind, yeah. you build wealth by owning like equity pieces of companies or whatever. You can be rich and like, you know, busting your ass, like, you know, as an executive or whatever, but like when you're actually trading time for money, at least that's the way I think it. I think it's a great it. definition. Yeah. I think that's a great way to look at it. One of the other things I thought we could riff on Kip, because yeah, one of the things, one of the things we stood up as part of the hustle deal was a creator program like this mm -hmm. podcast, other podcasts, 
HubSpot has an incredibly successful podcast network because of that. And like you had in your thread that you want to deeply embed creator partnerships as part of your marketing plan, give them equity, things like that. Like, have you started doing that? Maybe, how do you think about that? What are what are the early signals there in terms of that being a good path to growth for you? So, I mean, again, we are doing a bunch of creator partnerships by default. One, all these creators are investing in this round. Two, at other points, we're also making very clear that just because they're investing in our round, we don't expect free promotion, right? We're still going yeah. to sort of, you know, figure out terms with them. But like for our upcoming event, for instance, we're, we're featuring a bunch of them. They're doing interviews, they're doing panels, but also they earn affiliate commissions for anyone that they bring on board. And also like trying to make it with, with a lot of them. These are longstanding friendships slash relationships where it's less transactional. A lot of cases have known these people for three, five, seven years. And if not, you know, also prioritizing spending time in person and, and all of that, where really they ideally feel a sense of ownership and have influence over our roadmap as well. So really trying to like do it in a pretty well-rounded way because for us to succeed as a company, we need them to be bought in into like the bigger mission and vision of what we're doing and not just looking at us as a revenue source the way they might within FTX or a Robinhood deal or whatever. That works really well for Zapier as well, actually creators and showing off the product and how they use it. But one of the things I'm interested to get your perspective on because Kip and I have had a lot of experience in this is what's the hardest thing about working with creators, aka divas, <laughs> I think you're not wrong. Yeah. I think it really depends on, I guess, with anything, right? Who the creator is. But I, at this point, we have very little patience with the people that are like consistently unreliable. And again, at Teachable, I'm not going to name names. There's a lot of people we don't work with anymore just because they have proven to be consistently unreliable. And the advantage of having a pretty wide network is that stuff's just not worth it anymore. So from our perspective, like there was a time, right, where if a creator was willing to promote us, we'd do anything. We'd go above and beyond. We'd like, frankly, yeah, we'd be like, you know, the the person like trying to be in a relationship with them, getting treated like shit, like <laughs> abusive creator relationship. Yeah, yeah exactly. We'd be in a, but at this point, I mean, yeah, you know, like we have we have a wide enough network that we're not going to do that. And a lot of the people who even if they have a big audience are just very respectful and very good to work with. And those are the yeah. people we, we do work with. And I think, again, that's something that comes with time and frankly, having enough other sort of creator relationships where we can spend our time on the people that are good to us. My quick follow-up to that is like, you only have 10 people, you know, mm -hmm. you're not doing any paid ads. What's the marketing mix like? Like, are you spending a bunch of time on the creator side? You know, like if it was a rough pie chart, like where's the time going right now? So again, I don't believe being a CEO is a full-time job for quite a while. So right now, I would say a big part of my job is also being the de facto head of marketing. And it was a very sort of conscious decision to, you know, to structure the company that way. So I love that. Right now, I would say I'm a de facto head of marketing. We have one person full-time on SEO. We have one of my co-founders who runs the education product, runs, you know, partnerships, runs all of that side. Then we have someone running the social side. And with that, I think that's a marketing team we can be with for frankly another year or maybe longer. Like that's literally yeah. can cover all our bases. Is it time consuming? Yeah, absolutely. But right now spending time, you know, on these things is actually important versus building a scalable process. It's really just a case of like, you know, like we're still at the stage where, look, if I manually talk to five potential customers today and convert them all, that's a great day. This, this stage will not yeah. last at a certain point. You know, we need to add hundreds of customers a week to have a good week. We still have the first first couple of years, like 
it's still a lot of manual stuff. I think that's awesome. But there are people watching this on YouTube right now. And I think you just blew their minds. You're basically saying like 40 to 50% of the company is focused on marketing at this stage. This is second time founder stuff, right? Like I literally hired someone to do SEO as one of our first employees because I'm like, look, it's going to take us six to 12 months to rank for our very specific Hell keywords. yes. You know I what's up. Well, yeah, I may as well start this process today. But again, these are the biases I have because I'm a you know marketing slash go-to-market focused founder, which other people are not. So yeah, three people. So yeah, it's a big marketing size for a lot of companies like our size. But I also think at Teachable, we grew the team too much. So now we're going to keep the team at this size for quite a while and be very aggressive with using freelancers for lots of other stuff. Like there's a big tendency we had the last time where, oh, we needed a writer, so let's hire a writer. And then the work expands. You always need a writer. Exactly. Um, This time in marketing, you have so many amazing freelancers and so many amazing professionals that fit in better in that sense that we're going to keep the core team tiny, like three full time and then just happen to freelancers otherwise. That's super interesting. It's actually interesting how like marketing managed you are as a founder. Even at Teachable, that's the one team I've run. Like in general, I don't have any skills, right? I don't have any specific skills. No, but, you're, the only... but you're super analytical yeah. and yeah. like you run a fund, like you're you're way more analytical and more product minded than most people. And you actually still categorize yourself as a marketing kind of driven founder. Yeah, I mean, I think if someone would ask what I'm good at, I would say it's the intersection. It's where both those worlds mm-hmm. meet, where, you know, in, in either one, there's going to be people better at that specialized role. But yeah, like the intersection of like, I guess growth is what probably what it is, right? <laughs> right. If you talk to early stage founders, like it's like a lot of early stage founders are engineers or product people and marketing is a little bit of a throwaway. Is that a red flag for you? Is that something that makes you nervous? Yeah, those tended to be people I didn't invest in, not because they'll never be successful, but I think, I mean, we all have our own biases when we're investing where we there's certain things we like to see. And I definitely indexed on people that either were good at go to market or at least had spent considerable time thinking about it. And I think one of the one of the litmus tests is, you know, you can probably have a conversation with any founder, ask them a few questions like, oh, how big are you today? How many customers do you expect to be next year, two years after that? And you can quickly see, are they kind of like doing math in their mind or are they just, you know, pulling numbers out. And this is something that at Teachable we were very good at is we built a model. Every single month we had a model. We like tried to figure out how much we wanted to grow every month and then work backwards to find our channels. And we usually didn't hit those numbers, but we always had a very good idea of what it meant to be a million in error, two million in error, and you know, and so forth. But a lot of founders have never even really done that math. They, they don't know the difference between growing 2x or 3x, like which is a big difference, right? Like you, you <laughs> massive or yeah, yeah, exactly. But on the other hand, if a founder tells me they're trying to grow X percent per week or Y percent per month, and they're actually like run that math, that's a very good sign. And a lot of people don't do that. Know how you're going to grow. Have a basic growth model. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, have a growth model and have some investments to drive growth. I just had a uh, lunch in San Francisco with an awesome founder, Alexa, over at mm-hmm. Pocus, which they're doing sales data for product-led growth companies. And we had the same conversation. She was like, the first person I hired was a marketer. Right. Like I need to get the distribution and I need to win the hearts and minds of these sales leaders. And when you are completely product focused, it's all rational and no emotion. Right. Like you don't actually win them over. And that it seems like what you all are, what you're especially doing second time around is like, oh, no, finance can be perceived as highly rational, but we need to make it highly emotional and kind of demystify a lot of this for everybody. I'm, I'm also a little wary of like marketing leaders that spend all the, I mean, of course, brand is important and all of that stuff, but that are, <laughs> you can also go like into this weird marketing place where 
you move away from the numbers. And that's something that, again, oh, like, that's the worst. Exactly. So, the also very, so there are some startups, not all many, that spend so long on like the brand and content side, but like without actually having it, you know, cascade back to the numbers. I would talk to a founder recently, and like they were wanting my help and find that a marketing leader. Like mar- marketing, you can kind of categorize into really knows product, really knows messaging and positioning, really knows how to scale go to market. And then maybe, over the years, like community has been part of that. And they were just obsessed by like product positioning. And I was like, are you sure that's the thing you yeah. want that person to really excel at? I don't know. I, don't know. Yeah. I really don't know that's the main problem you're uh, going to have them growing like no. over the next two years. Are you sh- I kept saying, like, are you sure? Are you sure? And they're like, no, we need to tell the product story. And I'm like, oh, you know, I don't know if that's you're the thing that's going to matter. stupid. <laughs> I still have PTSD from recruiting a marketing executive though. Like of all the executive searches I've done, <laughs> I've consistently found that to be the hardest one. And it may be because like the more you know, the higher standard you have, like for a lot of other stuff, yeah. like chief compliance officer, I don't f-ing know what I'm looking for. So everyone's, anyone's fine. But, like, I'm, but like on marketing, it's it's just the one role that I've just found the hardest to hire for always. Um, what do you find hard about it? I think this would be super fascinating for founders. What, what What's really hard about it? And how do you try to like navigate that? I don't know. I interview most people and I'm like, no one's good. Like, you know, and I think it, it, <laughs> what does that mean though? What does it mean to not be good? I agree with you. I have the same experience, but I want to know what you mean. So, I mean, again, I think it's because in an ideal world, I'm looking for, I look for a marketing leader that is not afraid of revenue responsibility. And that's very yes. rare. A lot of, mm-hmm. especially in yes. companies where you don't have a sales team, we did not have a sales team. So we needed our marketing leader to be able to take revenue responsibility. But most marketing leaders have never been in a role like that. And the ones that have are just exceedingly rare. So it was just always a very, very hard role to, to recruit for. Because I mean, at the end of the day, like there's not that many companies where you don't have a sales team to hand off to or someone else to like, right. you know, actually take ownership on hitting numbers. It's the like the intersection between marketing and product led, right? It's mm-hmm. like understanding how to truly run that funnel, which I think is the most fun part. Right? I do. But a lot of marketing is messaging and positioning, which is really important. But I think that you need to kind of couple that with yeah. understanding go to yeah, market. Yeah, it's important, right? But in a hierarchy of needs, I'd always rather have, like, again, you probably want between the leader and the second in command, you want someone who's like very sort of analytical and numbers focused and the other person being brand and content and messaging and positioning. And I would always have the numbers person be above the person kind of on the messaging and positioning and so forth in terms yeah. of like setting the right culture for the team. Because the other way around, I think I think it's... But again, that, those, a lot of these are just my biases as a leader. We all carry our stuff around with us. Yeah, you're you're talking to two people who have that yeah. same bias. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, <laughs> you're just really preaching to the choir. You built a company in the pre-AI world. Yep. And we are entering like a... I don't know, we call it post-AI world, but like an AI, where AI exists world. Do you think about that? And then do you think your company needs to be magnitudes much smaller or like, how, how does it affect you in terms of just how you're building your company? Or does it, do you think about it at all? I don't spend a ton of time thinking about it. I think anyone who says they spend no time thinking about it right now is probably lying. <laughs> totally uh, but lying. I don't spend a ton of time thinking about it. And Here's why. In general, we've kept our company pretty small because I think the smaller you are, the more you can change direction. And I think that's sort of the important thing here is being nimble enough to change, to be able to change direction. In terms of how we're leveraging it in our, like, but again, you you kind of find use cases already. Like we were building an advisor feature that allows someone to sort of, you know, ask a financial advisor questions on, you know, what to invest in or how to contribute or whatever. And there's a good chance now that the advisor will have first drafts generated by AI. Was this a big part mm. of our pitch? No. But I think, you know, with any technological change, you can likely find ways of leveraging it. I'm more wary about companies that like kind of find the newest technological thing, drop everything and pivot hard in that direction. 
I think that's a mistake I've seen. Not even a mistake. Sometimes it's a move of desperation where a lot of companies that are struggling think about it as sort of their like get out of jail card of like, okay, maybe yeah. if I like, you know, launch a launch a cryptocurrency or if I, you know, pivot to AI, it may save us. But yeah, I mean, right now we're we're looking at it, but it's not dramatically changing our strategy, but we're ensuring we're a size or we can quickly sort of pivot. Yeah. I spent an embarrassing amount of time last night trying to get OpenAI to give me really bad financial advice. And so yeah. I asked it like for the worst performing funds over 2023. Yeah. And then I said, oh, you recommended me these funds, so I invested in them. And it said, I did not recommend these funds. And then, like, I, and, then, and then I went back and said, oh, I've just invested in that fund and lost $1,000. Why did you tell me to invest in that? And yeah. I was like, I did not tell you to invest in that. And I was like, should I play roulette? And there's no, don't play, don't play roulette. And I was like, give me the odds between black oh, and white. And they give, so they give me the odds. That's hilarious. <laughs> you, we, you need to live a little, man. You need to live yeah. a little. This, Come this on, is, dude. I Come just, on. I just this like fast. This is what you, what you do for fun these days. Get out of the house, man. Yeah, take the yeah. dogs for a walk. <laughs> but when it comes to money, though, I think AI catching on with financial advice, like in a, in a big way, will take a while. I think for a long yeah. time, it will be AI helping the humans get financial advice. Because I personally don't care to get advice from a human, but I found out that I am like very abnormal in this way. Most people, when it comes to their money, they want to see the face of the person that's kind of like signing off on all of this. So we think the approach is going to be have an actual advisor, but the actual advisor's first drafts can be prepared by something, but they're still signing off on it. And I think that will be the reality for a while, just because when it comes to money, people, yeah, they want to know who's in charge of this. Makes total sense. All right, we I, we are running out of time. We covered a ton of ground. Not doing advertising in your startup, the marketing bias in startups, like all, all kinds of good ground. Anchor, thank you so much for joining us. We really, really appreciate the time today. And we'll see everybody very soon on the next episode of Marketing Against the Grain. Marketing Against the Grain.